Okay, if you have your Bibles, turn to 2 Corinthians 5, verse 17. You have to listen again. Don't go anywhere. They make him sit through two sermons just so they get it. I don't know if you remember, but uh, when I was growing up, there was a little, there was a series called Creature Features, and I could never watch them because they were too scary, and my wife didn't want to, or my mom didn't want to be up all night, uh, you know, trying to soothe me from nightmares, but my older brothers would watch it, and and, and each week they featured a different, you know, monster, the mummy, or Dracula, or Frankenstein, and a werewolf and creatures like that. And the storytellers and writers would just sit down and write stories about all sorts of things. They had some pretty corny monsters on there from my brothers telling me. And, um, but that was their, that was the program. People watched that because they like to be scared, I guess. But, um, as a Christian, we are our own creatures. As a matter of fact, we are different. And each one of us is is unique in and of ourself, but we're all creatures of Christ Jesus. And just as that television show week after week would feature a creature, so God, through Jesus Christ, features all Christians to the world, that we would be his witnesses in the world and that we would show the world what it means to have a personal relationship with Christ. And so this morning, that's what we want to look at in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and just kind of get a, uh, a grip on uh, the uh, flagship verse of uh, Teen Challenge. Now, for those of you who have not studied 2 Corinthians, you need to know a little bit of background about what's going on in this book. What happened was, is Paul had gone and the, the church at Corinth had been founded and it was, seemed to be doing okay and Paul left. Then false teachers came in. And those false teachers, the first thing they set about doing was to undermine the authority of the Apostle Paul. And so they began to convince the church there that Paul was selfish. He was immoral. He was greedy. He was a false teacher and that they needed to reject him. Paul the Apostle, if you can imagine that. And Paul had gotten wind of this, and so he decided that he would go back and um, talk to them. And so uh, after hearing their, the false teachers were in there, he thought, I'm going to go back, I'm going to get things straight. So he shows up to Corinth, and all the people and the false teachers turn against him. The whole church turns against him, nobody comes to his defense, they attack him, reject him, and he leaves brokenhearted. And so he kind of leaves with his tail between his legs and he's not doing well. But he begins to heal up and he begins to realize his, his responsibility as an apostle, his responsibility to fight for the truth, his responsibility to shepherd the flock at Corinth and to deliver them from the false teachers. And so he writes to them, 2 Corinthians, which is his defense of his character his motives, and his apostolic authority. And that's what the entire book is about. He's defending himself in this book. And in the entire book, you, you read over and over, he's like a lawyer. He's defending himself and explaining things and saying, this is my motive and this is why and this is what I've done and compare me with these people. And you just look at this and look at what we've suffered all the way through. He's, he's defending, he's appealing to them. 
And so if you haven't already, look at 2 Corinthians 5 and you can follow along as I read verses 11 through 21, which will give us the surrounding context of verse 17 that we're going to look at in some detail. Paul says, therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade men, but we are made manifest to God. And I hope that we are made manifest also in your consciences. We are not, again, commending ourselves to you, but are giving you an occasion to be proud of us so that you will have an answer for those who take pride in appearance and not in heart. For if we are beside ourselves, it is for God, and if we are sound of mind, it is for you. For the love of Christ controls us. Having concluded this, that one died for all, therefore all died, and he died for all, that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and rose again on their behalf. Therefore, from now on, we recognize no one according to the flesh, even though we have known Christ according to the flesh, yet now we know him in this way no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things passed away, behold, new things have come. Now all these things are from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave to us the ministry of reconciliation. Namely, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and he has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Therefore... We are ambassadors for Christ. As though God were making an appeal through us, we beg you on behalf of Christ to be reconciled to God. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. This is a great, great passage. The whole chapter is great. The whole book's great. But in the beginning of the chapter, he begins talking about how, how we live in these mortal bodies, these bodies of flesh. And he has already talked about the persecution he has suffered, but the, he, he has a hope because he knows that in heaven is waiting for him this immortal dwelling, this immortal body, a glorified body. And his comment is whether we live or whether we die, we're going to be the Lord. So we have that hope. And so that's what he says, Um, and that is his ambition to be pleasing to Christ, verse 9. But then look at verse 10. After he gets through explaining this, he says this, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. Now, Paul mentions this idea of pending judgment You see, every person, whether they're a believer or an unbeliever, whether they're religious or an atheist, will all stand before the judgment seat of Christ and all be recompensed according to their deeds. And this is a scary thought if you don't know Jesus Christ. And this is the very reason why Paul is an apostle of Christ Jesus. It's the very reason why you as a believer exist here on earth. If it wasn't for evangelizing lost people, God would just rapture us the second after we believed. But then who would be left to share with those who don't believe? That's why God has left some of us here on, his, on the earth as witnesses, as ambassadors, to proclaim Jesus Christ. And that's why he says what he does in verse 11, Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade men. 
Paul's whole mission as an apostle was to persuade men that Jesus is the Messiah, that he is the Savior, that he could save you and redeem you from your sins and make you into a new creature. And look at verse 16. We have to know what verse 16 says because the beginning of verse 17 there is that little word therefore. And therefore always refers to what comes before it. And so if you're going to know what verse 17 means, you have to know what verse 16 means so you can know what Paul means when he says therefore in verse 17. So he says in verse 16, therefore from now on we recognize no one according to the flesh. And you might literally translate this phrase according to the flesh by what he is in the flesh or how he lives in the flesh. Now there are several ways you can interpret this. One way Paul Paul might be uh, maybe saying is he might be meaning that we don't recognize anybody who's walking around in a physical body, but that would be kind of silly, wouldn't it? I mean, after all, the only way we can ever recognize anybody is walking around in a physical body, right? Have you ever known anybody who doesn't exist? That doesn't work very well. So we know he's not talking about that. Or maybe Paul is saying, listen, we aren't going to recognize anybody who's living a fleshly life. If you're living a fleshly life, we aren't even going to recognize, we're going to ignore you. Well, that doesn't fit very well either because the whole passage is about reaching out to those who don't know Jesus Christ, who are in the flesh and living in the flesh. You see, Paul uses flesh in a couple different ways. One way he uses flesh is just to describe physical bodies, but another way is he describes the flesh as those sinful passions and those desires that are waging war within us, you know, that lust after what is evil. And so Paul can't be saying, listen, we're not going to recognize anybody who is living lives of sin because those are the people Paul wanted to recognize so he could evangelize them. And we'll see that more lately. He is persuading these men who are living according to the flesh to be reconciled to God. So that's not it. So what is he saying? Well, the best view here is to understand that Paul is saying, we are not going to recognize anyone according to fleshly or worldly standards. You see, if you look at verse 12, notice at the end of the passage, Paul has just mentioned there that about those who take pride in what? Appearance. Not in heart. And isn't this how the world um, values people? By how they look? I mean, do you see ugly models? No. No one would put somebody who wasn't really nice looking on the outside to model whatever they're trying to sell. They always take some very gorgeous or attractive woman or some very, you know, chisel-chinned guy. And they're, they're the models. Why? Because in the world, you look at the outward appearance. That is so important. That is so important. And you need to remember that in this book, Paul is defending himself against false teachers who have crept into Corinth. And guess what? Guess how those false teachers judged Paul? According to appearance. If you turn over to chapter 10... And you look at verse 10, Paul speaking of these false teachers and their comments about him said, say, and they say, speaking of Paul, his letters are weighty and strong, but his personal presence is unimpressive and his speech contemptible. 
Look down at verse 12. For we are not bold to class or compare ourselves with some of those who commend themselves. But when they measure themselves by themselves and compare themselves with themselves, they are without understanding. You see, one of the things Paul is saying here is, listen, we are not going to use worldly standards to judge people. No, we're using spiritual standards. You know, when Paul saw people, he saw them as believers or unbelievers. Those destined for hell or those destined for, for, for heaven. Those entrapped in sin or those freed by the blood of Christ. And he was going after those who didn't know Jesus Christ. He says, we aren't looking at people because they're tall, dark, and handsome, or curvy, or because they have a lot of money, or because they have a lot of fame, or they have a lot of status. But that is exactly the kind of thing that was attractive to those in the world, wasn't it? And those false teachers are trying to say, Paul, you know, you can't be right. Why? Because his doctrine's not sound? No. But because he was short and bald and, you know... His speech was unimpressive. What does that have to do with anything? There are always those in the church who always like to boast like those false teachers. You go into some churches and there are many boasters. They gravitate towards me. They they always want to impress the pastor. So they come over, hi, I'm so-and-so. Yes, you know, I've uh, served in Sunday school for 15 years. I always want to say, so what are you doing now? You go, well, you know what I did uh, a long time ago? Yeah, I donated this and I donated that. And I'm thinking to myself, you know, they just lost their rewards. They probably lost them many, many times over. And that is why the scriptures tell us that boasting is evil. Proverbs 26, 12 says, do you see a man who is wise in his own eyes? Yet I tell you, there is more hope for a fool than for him. And that's what these false teachers were. They were expert boasters. So when Paul says we recognize no one according to the flesh, he's saying we are not going to assess people according to worldly, carnal, fleshly standards. We are going to recognize them according to spiritual standards. And you need to remember that Paul was a Pharisee. And you remember the Pharisees, right? The Pharisees were those self-righteous hypocrites who, who walked around that always had confrontations with Jesus. You remember some of the things the Gospels t- say about them? They loved to be called rabbi by men. They loved the chief seats. They loved to stand in the corners and pray so that people would see them standing. And if they were fasting, they put a whole bunch of ashes on their face. You go, oh, that guy's fasting in secret. In John chapter 8, verse 15, Jesus rebuked them and said, You judge according to the flesh. And Paul was one of those Pharisees. Remember, he describes himself as a Pharisee of Pharisees. Proud, boastful, self-seeking, self-centered, attention-grabbing, forgetting to turn off his cell phone. So Paul, after listening to all these attacks, he's defending himself in this text. And Paul is trying to say, listen, we knew Jesus according to the flesh. And you know what we thought he was? A heretic. The Pharisees thought he was a heretic. We thought he was some false teaching, false Messiah that was leading a bunch of people in rebellion against God. 
He wouldn't submit to the Pharisees. He shamed us in public. He called us hypocrites. And we wanted to kill him. Because we judged him according to the flesh. This is why in 1 Corinthians 15.9, he speaks of himself as being the least of all apostles. Why? He says, because I persecuted the church of God. In Galatians 1, 13 through 15, he describes his former manner of life as persecuting the church beyond measure and trying to destroy it. Beyond measure, he said. He was doing everything he could to destroy the church. In 1 Timothy 1, 12 through 15, Paul describes himself as formerly a blasphemer, a persecutor, and violent aggressor, the foremost of sinners. Why? Because he was a hypocritical, self-righteous Pharisee who was persecuting the very way of God, and he didn't even know it. He was dead in his sins and blind in his own pride and arrogance. And he says, we don't judge anyone that way. And even though we might have known Christ that way in the past, we don't know him that way any longer. No, they know Jesus in a different way now. They know him as the Lord of glory. They know him as the one whose eyes are like a flame of fire and feet like burnished brass, the judge of heaven and earth, the all-sovereign Lord and creator of all that exists. That's how they know him now. And they know themselves as servants to him that he is the judge of the living and the dead. So, when our text comes out and says, Therefore, if there is anyone in Christ, he is a new creature, old things passed away, behold, new things have come, we know what Paul is talking about. He says, Therefore, since we aren't judging men according to worldly standards, since we aren't knowing Christ because of worldliness, therefore... Therefore what? If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things pass away, behold, new things have come. Now from this one verse, you learn three important things about being a believer in Jesus Christ. Three important things. First, if you know Christ, you are a new creature. Two, if you know Christ, your old life has passed away. And three, if you know Christ, your new life has come. Look at verse 17. After he says, therefore, he says, if anyone is in Christ. Now, notice that little word, if there. What is that word? That is what you call a condition statement. You must meet a condition before the rest of the verse applies to you. And what is that condition? If anyone is in Christ. So the obvious question is, what does it mean to be in Christ? Well, if you look at the scripture, you discover that the phrase in Christ was a favorite description that Paul loved to use of believers. He uses the phrase over 80 times in his epistles to describe those who know Jesus Christ. They are in Christ. And where do you think Paul got that phrase from? Well, if you turn over to John 17 and Jesus' high priestly prayer... This is where he got it from. He got it from the teaching of the Lord himself. Jesus in John 17 is praying for his disciples. He's praying for those who will come to know him. It's right before his crucifixion. And this is what we read in verses 20 and 21. 
Jesus praying to the Father says, I do not ask on behalf of these alone, but for those also who believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, even as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you sent me. Now notice there. Jesus is praying that men would be in him so that the world may believe that God sent Christ, that he is the Messiah, the Savior of the world. The very purpose while people are saved, why they receive the Holy Spirit in Jesus Christ is so they can be witnesses in the world of God's saving grace. And that's what Jesus prays. And I think that's where Paul got this phrase. And we could look at, you know, any number of those 80 passages. But the one I like is Romans 8.1. I love that verse. In Romans 8.1, it's like the pinnacle of the book of Romans. And it's familiar to many of us. Many of us have it memorized. But the text says, therefore, if there is anyone, no, therefore, there is now no condemnation, wrong verse, for those who are what? In Christ Jesus. And then he goes down to talk about what it means to be in Christ Jesus. There's no condemnation. What does that mean? It means just that. There's no condemnation. No judgment from God. No wrath from God. No consequences from sin. Why? Because you are in Christ Jesus. Now how do you get in Christ Jesus? Well you get in Christ Jesus only one way. There's only one way to get in him. And a lot of people have this messed up. A lot of people think, well, you know, I've got to get religious, you know, so I'm going to start going to church. You don't get into Christ Jesus by just going to church. Some people go, well, you know, I know I should probably read my Bible, so I'm going to read my Bible. You don't get into Christ Jesus by merely reading the Bible. Well, you know, I'm going to start getting involved in, in a religious organization. No, that doesn't get you in either. There is only one way to get in Christ Jesus. And that's to understand you are a sinner, that he is the Savior, and to place your faith in Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection on the cross, to believe the gospel, to repent of your sins, and to receive Jesus Christ, the message of the gospel. It's, It's the only way. There is no other way. Now, a lot of people say, well, what do you mean by repent? I mean, well, that, isn't that kind of like an old word that old preachers used? Well, new preachers should use it more often. Repent means to have a change of mind that results in a change of direction. The best verse on this is Isaiah 55. Turn there. Isaiah chapter 55. This is probably one of the clearest verses in the Bible on repentance. There are a lot of places where Jesus calls sinners to repentance or Paul or he sends out the the apostles to preach repentance. But it doesn't really explain very clearly what that means. But Isaiah 55 tells us exactly what repentance is. Look at verses 5 and 6 of Isaiah 55. The text reads, Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way, and the unrighteous man his thoughts, and let him turn to the Lord and to our God, for he will what? Notice the two things. He will have compassion on him, and what? He will abundantly pardon. Now do you see what repentance is there? Notice again. One, First, you've got to seek the Lord while he may be found. 
call on him when he is near. When is that? It's right now and it's only right now. It's never tomorrow. It's never next week. You may be dead tomorrow. You may be dead next week. You don't know when you're going to die. And so today is always the day of salvation. And he says, seek the Lord while he is near, which means right now. That's the first thing you need to do. You need to realize that he is the Savior. Jesus Christ is the only one who can save you. Secondly, let the wicked forsake his way. What's that? Well, the way of your life is how you live. You need to come to a place in your life where you realize it's over. It is it is over. I am no longer going to do that again. You must forsake your way. You must abandon your way. You must give up your way. You must turn from your wicked way. We heard testimony this morning of people who just got to a place in their life where they just said, it's over. I quit. I am not going to do it my way anymore. That is the first part of repentance. But just saying, just say no, doesn't cut it. Notice what the text says. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his what? Thoughts. Why does he say that? Because you not only have to stop doing your sin, you have to stop thinking about it. Why? Because our actions are products of what? Our thoughts. First we think things and then we do things. And so if your thoughts are not right, then your deeds are not right. But if your thoughts are right, your deeds are right. So you have to forsake and abandon your wicked ways and forsake and abandon your unrighteous thoughts. What else? Well, let him turn to what? To the Lord and to our God. Not only do you say, whoa, I'm stopping that. I'm not going to think about that. But you turn. You turn to the person of Jesus Christ, the Lord Jesus Christ. You embrace him as your personal Lord and Savior. You beg him for mercy, for help, and he saves you, puts his spirit in you, gives you the fellowship of believers in the local church, and gives you everything you need for life and godliness so you can now live for him. That's what it means to repent. To have a change of mind and a change of direction. Away from sin and towards God. And the question is this. Have you done that? Do you see yourself as a wretched, hell-bent sinner in need of God's saving grace? You know, it's amazing how many people think they're pretty good. Now, I talk to them and go, well, you know, I mean, I, you know, I've never murdered anybody. Well, that's handy. <laughs> that's good. It's good that you've never murdered anybody. The problem is, is, do you know, have you ever been angry with anybody? Well, yes. Do you know that anger is nothing more than a seed of murder? Have you ever been angry? Well, yeah, murder. Well, you know, but I've never committed adultery. Oh, really? You ever looked at somebody and lusted after them? What does Jesus say? You look at somebody and left to them, you've committed adultery in your heart. Never lusted? Adulterer. Oh, but I'm not really that bad. Have you ever lied, ever? And if you say no, you're lying. <laughs> you're a liar. Have you ever stole anything? Oh, no, I don't steal. Not even a paperclip. Well, thief. <laughs> Do 
Well, I've, you know, I'm, you think I'm that bad? You ever disobeyed your parents? Well, yes. You've dishonored your parents. You ever coveted after anything? You're covetous. You ever been jealous? Go through the commandments. You are a sinner. You have broken the commandments of the holy God and he is by no means will allow the guilty to go unpunished. Either you are going to be punished for your sin or Jesus Christ is going to be punished for you. Which will you have? You either come to God in his terms, receive Jesus Christ, have his perfect righteousness substituted to you, let your sin be taken upon him so that he dies for you in your place as a substitute for you. Or you keep your sin and you suffer in hell for all eternity because of it. Those are the only two options. And you know what? When everybody leaves here today, everybody walks out the doors, we'll be in one of those two categories. One of those two categories. Now, if you have repented of your sins, or you're pretty sure you have, then you are in Christ. And now, everything in the verse applies to you. So let's see what it says. Look down at verse 17. First thing, if you know Christ, you are a new creature. The first thing he says, if anyone's in Christ, he is a new creature. The word creature, as the New American Standard translates it, might literally be translated new creation. It it describes the process of being totally changed and redone. If you've given your life to Christ, you're no longer the same person. You remember Jesus and his discussion with Nicodemus the Pharisee? You remember that. Nicodemus came to Jesus and Jesus said what? You must be born again. And he says if you aren't born again, you are not getting into the kingdom of God. You must be recreated, reborn. And this is what Paul was talking about in Titus 3.5. When he says we are not saved according to deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to his mercy by the washing and regeneration and renewal in the spirit. That's how we're saved. Regeneration, transformation. And the word regeneration is a word that means to recreate. It really means to take something that has decayed and restore it to the state of pristine condition. I think the best illustration of this is old restored cars. You you go down to Bob's Big Boy on Friday night. You ever been there? They have some neat cars there. I mean, those... Cars that they find in people's fields and their garages and they're all broken down. They get parts from this car and that car and send back east to get a fender. And they collect all these parts over the years. And these guys spend way too much time and way too much money building, restoring, putting all this energy into these cars. And they regenerate those cars so that they look like what? Brand new. And that is exactly what God is doing in every believer's life. Adam, before the fall, was perfect. Everything he was was perfect. No sin nature. He was perfect. He was just perfect. But then he sinned. And all of his children are sinners. They are conceived in sin, born in sin, and go astray from the womb and sin because they're sinners. They're just sinners. And so Jesus is in the process of coming into people's lives and changing them, regenerating them into the very person of himself to restore them back to the place man was before the fall in Jesus Christ. 
And what Paul is saying here is, if you are in Christ, you are regenerated. You look at a ugly old caterpillar, spins a cocoon, comes out a butterfly. Now, does that butterfly look anything like that caterpillar? Nothing. We used to raise chickens, collect eggs all the time. In the spring, certain hens would want to sit. We'd throw some eggs under them, mark them. 21 days later, voila, chickens. You, you take an egg, you crack it open, put it there, compare it to the chicken. They don't look anything alike. One's just a, a bunch of runny goo. And here's the chicken. What happened? There's been a regeneration that has taken place, a transformation. They are no longer what they were. I'm telling you, before we come to know Jesus Christ, we're nothing but runny yokes. But when God gets a hold of us through the gospel, He and His grace comes into our life, and the Holy Spirit begins to transform us. Man, we don't even look anything like we looked before. Look in the back of your bulletin. Does that look like Dave Fogg? People kept coming up to me saying, Who is that? I said, I have to guess. They go, Is that, is that Walt Bertelson? <laughs> No. No, is that, is that Lou Stone? Mm. What do you think? No, you're changed. You're transformed. You're different. And it's not just a, it's not just a, a appearance thing. It's an inside thing. Your motives are different. Your desires are different. Your, your loves are different. Your cravings are different. You're just different. You know, I don't know if you experienced this. Before I became a believer, I didn't want to have anything to do with the Bible. I didn't want anybody preaching at me. No, do not preach to me. But then after I became a believer, I could not read the Bible enough. I would read it and I would just think, whoa, I would just want to get up and preach. Do you know what's in there? Look at that verse. In every verse you study to prepare a sermon, that is the best verse in all the Bible. And every week, it's the best text in all the Bible. Why? Because you spent all that week looking at it. And God changes you. You're different. And pretty soon, you see all your old patterns of sin and carnality. They're all disappearing, and you're becoming this new creature in Jesus Christ. That leads us to our next point. Your old life has passed away. Look at the text. You become a new creature. Old things have passed away. And the Greek tense here indicates that it is a definitive change, an aorist tense. It has passed away. It's over. It's the same word used in Second, or yeah, Second Peter three ten, where Jesus speaks of the heavens and the earth. Remember, he says, and when the Lord comes back like a thief, he says the heavens will pass away with a roar. Gone. And what's interesting is, you know, he talked about the study being done. Just about, you know, Teen Challenge. And they're going to try and figure out why the ministry is so successful. All they'll be able to do is get statistics. They can't figure it out. It scratched their head. You know, it can't be Jesus. It just couldn't be this religious thing. I mean, it couldn't be the myth called Jesus. And what does that have to do? They they, they won't be able to figure it out. Because they're unbelievers and they're dead in their sins, they'll be able to get the statistics and they'll be able to say, yeah, it's happening. But if you were to ask one of them in private, they'd say, I don't know what they're doing. I think they're brainwashing them. They must be giving them some sort of secret medication on the side that we don't know about. I mean, they just can't figure it out. 
Because they aren't in Christ. But if you are in Christ, you know what it's about. Because you've experienced God's word in your life, his spirit working and, and transforming you. And now your motives and your ways and your thinking are just totally different than what they ever were. Turn to Romans 6. Romans 6, Paul talks about this. And look at verse 6. After he talks about being united with him in the likeness of his resurrection, verse 5, he says, Knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him, in order that our body of sin might be done away with, so that we would no longer be slaves to sin. For he who has died is freed from sin. Do you see that right there? A person who doesn't know Jesus Christ is a slave to sin. They can't say no. And you heard the testimonies, right? You know, I went here and I went there and I went to this thing and I went to that thing. And I kept going, falling back and falling back. And I wanted to do it myself. I wanted to say no myself. You know, just say no. It doesn't work without the power of God. And you can do all you want by yourself, but... Doesn't work. You are a slave. You are held captive by Satan, Paul says, to do his will. But when you come to know Jesus Christ, you are freed. You are no longer slaves of sin. Look at verse 8. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him, knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, is never to die again, and the death no longer is master over him. For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life that he lives, he lives to God. Even so, consider your members as dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. I love that. That's how we are to consider our lives, dead to sin. All those cravings and all those things, dead. We've turned from those things. So the question is, what does that mean for you? It means that when you come to Jesus Christ, as Paul says in Colossians 3.9, you have laid aside the old self with its evil practices. It's like you've been painting in your living room, and you've got all that paint all over you, and you just take those old paint clothes off, and you lay them aside. It's over. You peel off that old way of life. And one of the best verses on this is in 1 Corinthians 6. It is chapter 6. In the first service I uh, said 6, no 10, no 6, no 10. It's 6. I popped open my new Bible and I thought, the verse isn't there. That's because I was looking in the wrong chapter. Because it's on a different place in the page. But look at 1 Corinthians 6, verse 9. Paul says, or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Why does he say do not be deceived? Because many people think they're going to heaven even though they're living in high-handed rebellion against God on a continual basis. Not happening. Christians may sin, they fall into sin, but they're convicted. And God, through his grace, turns them around again. He says, do not be deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. That's some bad news. But notice verse 11. Such were some of you. But you were washed, but you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the spirit of our God. What is he talking about there? Regeneration. Those old things have passed away. Such were some of you. They were has-beens. They used to be that way. They no longer were. So how about it? Does that 
represent you? Do you pass the test? Are you in Christ? Has your old manner of life passed away? Are you just continuing on in your old manner, just getting older in your old manner? If you don't know Jesus Christ, don't lie to yourself. Don't fool yourself into thinking that you are a Christian if you aren't a new creature. There is no such thing as an unregenerate regenerate. There's no such thing as an unholy holy one. There's, there's no such thing as a non-follower follower of Jesus. You're either following Christ or you're not. You're either holy or you're not. You're either redeemed or you're not. There's no middle ground. But the joy here is in this last part of the verse. If you know Christ as your personal Savior, a new life has come. Yeah, you still sin, but now you're convicted about it. Now you still sin, but it grieves you so much, you've got to confess it to God. And even though you may fall into sins over and over again, you have your favorite sin you're battling with, God's grace is sufficient, and as you look back over the month and the week and the year, you see God changing you, and pretty soon all of those things are different. And I love what this ver- the end of the verse says, Behold, I love that. That is the announcement of the king is coming. Behold the king! But there's no king here. He says, Behold, and who is being referred to? You! And your new life. The King, Jesus Christ, has given you new life. And it has come. You have all the things you need to live for God now. That's why Paul said what he did in verses 14 and 15. I love this. Look there. For the love of Christ controls us, having concluded this, that one died, therefore all died. And he died for all, that they who live would no longer live for themselves, but for him who died again and rose in their behalf. My wife had that engraved on the inside of my, just the reference on the inside of my wedding band. Because that's what she wanted for me. To have the love of Christ controlling, and that's what every believer's ambition should be. You remember what Paul said in Galatians 2.20. He says, I have been crucified with Christ and it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. He says, the life I live in the flesh as a mortal person walking around in a physical body. I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. You have a new life. You're changed. You're different than you ever were. And this morning, I just want to encourage all of you. If you know Jesus Christ, if you are in Christ, if you have a transformed life, praise God and go out into the world and be God's ambassador. Look at the text where Paul says in verse 11, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade men. Look at the end of verse 18. He gave to us the ministry of reconciliation. Look at the end of verse 19. He has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Look at verse 20 at the beginning. We are ambassadors for Christ. Look at the middle of the verse. We beg you on behalf of Christ to be reconciled to God. That is what you are as a new creature in Christ. An ambassador. One given the word of God and a commission to go out and be in the world and live for Jesus Christ so people can see your transformed life and can hear the gospel from your mouth and be saved. We've seen it from the testimonies behind us. We saw it last year. I'm sure we'll see more to come. It's God's will. And I hope none of you would leave here today 
as an old creature. Because today is the day of salvation. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for your goodness. And if there is anyone here, Father, who has never really repented of their sins, deep in their heart, they want to do it themselves. They want to hang on to their their beloved sin. And they just are proud and want to only put on the appearance of being a Christian. Father, I pray that you would convict them right now. And right now in their heart, they would turn from their sin and receive Jesus Christ as their Savior. That they would forsake their wicked way and turn from their wicked understanding and their wicked heart turn to you and father i pray for all of us who know you father i just beg you help your love just flow through us and the excitement of being one of your new creations motivate us to share the gospel that we might see people saved changed and father giving you glory and we know this is your will so we pray it with all our heart in christ's name amen